Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 258. Today's big Bible question, is there a hidden message in Paul's Corinthian letters that was not written by Paul? Hey, Dad, does the Bible ever talk about the sky turning a weird color before Jesus comes back? Is a question my son John Cademan asked me today. My initial instinct was to say no, but then I actually remembered Joel chapter 2, which is then quoted in Acts chapter 2, which says this, Acts 2, 19-21, I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's that. Today was a weird day out in the West, pretty much all over the West, Oregon and uh, even parts of Nevada and definitely California, Washington, I think other places too. There are fires like burning everywhere out here. And it's crazy. They're causing untold damage. And the sun was so weird today. Not quite darkness, but like a tenth of its normal brightness and way different in color. I really can't describe it very well, so you need to come to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and look at the picture of San Francisco today. Like, the sky was orange. It was weird. The sun was some sort of weird, pinkish, kind of orangey color, and it wasn't at all bright to look like. Like, I've seen the moon uh, several times that was way brighter than the sun today, even though it was a cloudless sky. A little bit of smoke. Okay, a lot of smoke in the sky, but no clouds. It was surreal and strange and creepy, and this year just keeps getting weirder. And it pr- prompted that exchange I began with between my son and I. So is Jesus returning soon? Well, like we've talked about before, the church should always live like he is. Now, today's Bible passages don't discuss the blood moon or dark sun or smoky clouds very much, but they are going to set an all-time record for most chapters read in one podcast with seven. That's right. We're going to read seven chapters today, beginning with 2 Samuel 4 and 5. And you know, if it's 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel, somebody's going to get murdered and other people are going to get executed. Psalm 52, 53, 54 are decidedly less violent. And we also have Ezekiel 13 in our focus chapter, which is 1 Corinthians 15, one of my literally two favorite chapters in the Bible. But first, I would like to do something very unusual. I want to do a serial review. Now, I know that sounds strange, but believe it or not, I used to be a panelist on a semi-popular podcast back in the day called The Gospel Friends, and one of the things we did was serial reviews. Yesterday, for the first time in my life, I ate an iconic cereal and wanted to tell you about it. Wheat Bix is a huge cereal in many places that aren't the United States, And we have quite a few Australian and New Zealand listeners, and I know Wheat Bix is a big deal to them, likely the Aussie national cereal. I've been listening to an Australian podcast here lately, the Unmade podcast with Tim and Brady, and that inspired me to try a cereal from Oz. I've never tried it before because eh, it looks gross, and I prefer cereals like Oreo O's, Boo Berries, Fruit Loops, and other kids' cereals. 
As I've gotten older, however, my tastes have broadened. Not to the rejection of kids' sugary cereals, they're still amazing, but to the greater and greater acceptance of more adult cereals like Raisin Bran and Frosted Mini Wheats. You can have your all brand, though. That stuff is scary and looks like rabbit pellets. Anyway, Wheat Bix looks like a very, very, very crunchy cereal, and it comes in giant biscuits about two times as large as an original Red Box Frosted Mini Wheat, which is itself about four times as large as a Frosted Mini Wheat of today's orange boxes. I fear it figured these Wheat Bix biscuits would be like adamantium-laced Captain Crunch cereal, strong enough to split a wallaby mouth in twain and to make a salty's jaw ache. But, amazingly, Weetabix... Wheat Bix actually dissolves super, super quickly in the milk and becomes very soft, almost mushy. Now, that may sound unpleasant, but it was actually quite good, especially once I drizzled it with a bit of honey on the biscuits, which is apparently the proper way to eat the cereal. My daughter said it was good with blueberries, too, so I'm going to give that a shot tomorrow. Overall, I give it four and a quarter crunches out of five. I'll be buying Wheat Bix again, mates. Now, on to the Bible. Let's read 1 Corinthians 15 and focus on the only thing in the world that is 100 times plus more important than cereal, that is, the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over five hundred brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, is raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about him that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy To be abolished is death. Hmm. 
For God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day, as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God, and I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Wonderful chapter. Verses 16 through 19 are a bold challenge to anybody who would seek to make faith in Jesus like a personal choice or even belief in resurrection, anything other than faith in a real, literal, historical event that physically and historically happened. So verses 16 through 19 say, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we've put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone, says Paul. 
Does that sound like somebody who's trying to pull a hoax on somebody on on people? Does that sound like a fraud? No, Paul is saying, look, if we're lying about this, then it's it's all a waste. That's why the resurrection is like the linchpin of Christianity. It's the most important thing. Our faith is worthless if Jesus didn't truly rise from the dead, but he did. The evidence points to that. And we're going to talk about one of those evidences today. And if you're a new re- reader or listener to the Bible Reading Podcast, I want to invite you to come to our website again, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and check out some of the previous episodes we've done on this because we've talked about the resurrection, I don't know, 10, 12 times, something like that. Let's talk today about verses 3 through 7 because they are some of the most important and interesting verses in the New Testament. This is what they say. I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over five hundred brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, the following is a modified version of a chapter in my book, Easter Easter Fact or Fiction, which is available on Amazon, many scholars see in these verses, 3 through 7, an early Christian creed. Now, most scholars agree, even critical scholars, that this statement predates the writing of 1 Corinthians by several years, perhaps going back as far as the 30s AD, in other words, within a very, very short time after the resurrection of Jesus. Eminent scholar James D.G. Dunn lists several technical reasons that 1 Corinthians 15 3-7 was not originally Pauline, but likely formulated by the Jerusalem church way earlier than 1 Corinthians, probably in the 30s A.D. And here are the reasons, and if you, if you have a hard time following these by listening, I totally understand because they're gra- grammatical reasons. You can come uh, read it on BibleReadingPodcast.com to get a little bit of an idea of what's being said, and I include the Greek on the website, although I'm not going to read it here. So here's the reasons that Dr. Dunn believes that verses 3 through 7 were earlier than 1 Corinthians and not written by Paul. Number one, the two relative clauses in antithetic parallelism. Number two, the parallel verbs used as aorist participles. Number three, two sets of parallel phrases that are attached. Number four, the untypical Pauline term, orizo, which he doesn't use very much. And finally, the typically Semitic placing of the verb, uh, in this case, to genomenu, which first, which is not something that Paul usually does. Now, this is significant since Paul is mostly writing to Gentile readers in Rome. Semitic or Jewish components tend to point to an origin in the Jerusalem church where it is likely to have been formulated or approved by the leadership there, which was Peter, James, and John. Now, I realize that's some pretty highly technical information there, but the meaning is quite critically important. What Dunn and other scholars are indicating is that the grammar and structure of 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 are very different from the rest of the book. And the best explanation for this is that the section is something Paul is quoting and didn't write, and therefore it is an older tradition than what is found in 1 Corinthians 15. Similarly, if a person from 2020, from 2020 were to write a book with the lyrics to, I don't know, Shakespeare contained within, and that book were to be found 2,000 years from now, it 
likely would be possible to tell by analyzing Shakespeare's English versus common 2020 English that there was a different dialect being written. The same thing goes for a 2020 book that might include the lyrics from an 80s song. Now, why is this significant? Because 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 is a confession that Jesus died for people's sins and that he arose bodily on the third day and literally appeared to over 500 people. Now, if this passage is what it seems and it was written in the 30s AD, that leaves very, very, very little room for the disciples or anybody else to organize a resurrection conspiracy and even less time for there to be mythical rumors rising up about Jesus. The bottom line is that it was apparently the confession of the Jerusalem church within five years of the death of Jesus that he rose from the dead and obviously appeared to hundreds of people. Therefore, the earliest members of the fellowship of Jesus believed that he rose from the dead and confessed to each other that he rose from the dead. No scholar, critical or otherwise, has ever produced evidence pointing to an early time when the church of the first century was not united in the belief that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead after his crucifixion. Now, why is this likely early creed so important? Because it indicates, since 1 Corinthians was almost certainly written somewhere between A.D. 51 and A.D. 57, that the belief in the resurrection of Jesus was widespread, accepted, and earlier than this letter in the church. This is concrete and textual evidence that the early church did not mythologize Jesus. In other words, did not at some point consider him to be only a great teacher and then only much later begin to view him as the resurrected Son of God. No, because 1 Corinthians is almost universally accepted as a very early letter genuinely written by the Apostle Paul, even by critical scholars, the presence of an even earlier creedal statement quoted in that early letter is a strong demonstration that the earliest church was built on the belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, some critical scholars and even popular authors like Dan Brown have suggested very much otherwise, that Jesus was not considered the Son of God who rose from the dead by the early church, but there's no evidence for this. The textual evidence gives no evidence in support of an early church who simply followed Jesus as a teacher and gives reams of support for an early church that was united in the belief that Jesus, the Son of God, was raised from the dead and appeared to hundreds of witnesses. He's alive. He's alive. I'm forgiven and heaven's gates are open wide. Amen. We continue with 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. When Saul's son Ish-bosheth heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he gave up and all Israel was dismayed. Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding parties, one named Banah and the other Rechab, sons of Ramon, the Berethite of the Benjaminites. Beeroth is also considered part of Benjamin and the Berethites fled to Getame and still reside there as aliens today. Saul's son Jonathan had a son whose feet were crippled. He was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nanny picked him up and fled, but as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Rechab and Benah, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, set out and arrived at Ish-bosheth's house during the heat of the day while the king was taking his midday nap. They entered the interior of the house as if to get wheat and stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Benah escaped. 
They had entered the house while Ish-bosheth was lying on his bed in his bedroom and stabbed and killed him. They removed his head, took it, and traveled by the way of the Arabah all night. They brought Ish-bosheth's head to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here's the head of Ish-bosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who intended to take your life. Today the Lord has granted vengeance to my lord the king against Saul and his offspring." But David answered Rechab and his brother Benah, sons of Rimon the Berethite, As the Lord lives, the one who has redeemed my life from every stress, when the distress, when the person told me, Look, Saul is dead, he thought he was a bearer of good news. But I seized him and put him to death at Ziklag. That was my reward for him, to him for his news. How much more when wicked men kill a righteous man in his own house on his own bed, So now, should I not require his blood from you and purge you from the earth? So David gave orders to the young men, and they killed Rechab and Benah. They cut off their hands and feet and hung their bodies by the pool in Hebron, but they took Ish-bosheth's head and buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. All the tribes of Israel, chapter 5, verse 1, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with him at Hebron in the Lord's presence, and they anointed him David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began his reign. He reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who inhabited the land. The Jebusites had said to David, you will never get in here. Even the blind and lame can repel you, thinking David can't get in here. Well, that's not a very nice thing to say. Verse 7, yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. He said that day, whoever attacks the Jebusites must go through the water shaft to reach the lame and the blind who are despised by David. For this reason, it is said, the blind and the lame will never enter the house. David took up residence in the stronghold, which he named the city of David. He built it up all the way around from the supporting terraces inward. David became more and more powerful, and the Lord God of armies was with him. King Hiram of Tyre sent envoys to David, and he also sent cedar logs, carpenters, and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he arrived from Hebron, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of those born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they all went in search of David, but he heard about it and went down to the stronghold. So the Philistines came and spread out in Rephaim Valley. Then the Lord inquired, then David inquired of the Lord, should I attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord replied to David, Attack, for I will certainly hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal-perazim and defeated them there and said, Like a bursting flood, the Lord has burst out against my enemies before me. Therefore he named that place the Lord Bursts Out. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. 
the Philistines came up again and spread out in Rephaim Valley. So David inquired of the Lord and he answered, Do not attack directly, but circle around behind them and come at them opposite the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, act decisively, for then the Lord will have gone out ahead of you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So David did exactly as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Geba to Gezer. Ezekiel chapter 13 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying. Say to those who prophesy out of their own imagination, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets, Israel, are like jackals among ruins. You did not go up to the gaps or restore the wall around the house of Israel so that it might stand in battle on the day of the Lord. They saw false visions and their divinations were a lie. They claimed this is the Lord's declaration when the Lord did not send them, yet they waited Yet they wait for the fulfillment of their message. Didn't you see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you proclaimed this is the Lord's declaration even though I had not spoken? Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. You have spoken falsely and had lying visions. That's why you discover that I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and speak lying divinations. They will not be present in the council of my people or be recorded in the register of the houses of Israel, and they will not enter the land of Israel, then you will know that I am the Lord God, since they have led my people astray by saying peace when there is no peace, and since when a flimsy wall is being built, they plaster it with whitewash, therefore tell those plastering it with whitewash that it will fall. Torrential rain will come and I will send hailstorms plunging down and a whirlwind will be released. When the wall has fallen, will you not be asked, where's the whitewash you plastered on it? So this is what the Lord God says, I will release a whirlwind in my wrath. Torrential rain will come in my anger and hailstones will fall in destructive fury. I will demolish the wall you plastered with whitewash and knock it to the ground so that its foundation is exposed. The city will fall and you will be destroyed within it. Then you will know that I am the Lord. After I exhaust my wrath against the wall and against those who plaster it with whitewash, I will say to you, the wall is no more and neither are those who plastered it. Those prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem and saw a vision of her peace, a vision of peace for her when there was no peace. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Now you, son of man, face the women among your people who prophesy out of their own imagination and prophesy against them. Say, this is what the Lord God says. Woe to the women who sew magic bands on the wrist of every hand and who make veils for the heads of people of every size in order to ensnare lives. Will you ensnare the lives of my people but preserve your own? You profane me among my people for handfuls of barley and scraps of bread. You put those to death who should not die and spare those who should not live when you lie to my people who listen to lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. I am against your magic bands with which you ensnare people like birds and I will tear them from your arms. I will free the people you have ensnared like birds. I will also tear off your veils and rescue my people from your hands so that they will no longer be prey in your hands. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you have disheartened the righteous person with lies when I intended no distress, and because you have supported the wicked person so that he does not turn from his evil way to save his life, therefore you will no longer see false visions or practice divination. 
I will rescue my people from your hands, then you will know that I am the Lord. Psalm chapter 52 verse 1. Why boast about evil, you hero? God's faithful love is constant, like a sharpened razor. Your tongue devises destruction, working treachery. You love evil instead of good, lying instead of speaking truthfully. Selah. You love any words that destroy your you treacherous tongue. This is why God will bring you down forever. He will take you, ripping you out of your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous will see and fear, and they will derisively say about that hero, Here is the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, taking refuge in his destructive behavior. But I am like a flourishing olive tree in the house of God. I trust in God's faithful love forever and ever. I will praise you forever for what, for what you have done. In the presence of your faithful people, I will put my hope in your name, for it is good. Psalm 53, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on God. Then they will be filled with dread. Dread like no other, because God will scatter the bones of those who besiege you. You will put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Psalm 54, verse 1. God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. God, hear my prayer. Listen to the words from my mouth, for strangers rise up against me and violent men intend to kill me. They do not let God guide them. Selah. God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my life. He will repay my adversaries for their evil. Because of your faithfulness, annihilate them. I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, because it is good. For he has rescued me from every trouble, and my eye has looked down on my enemies. Amen. Blessed be your name, O Lord. Save us by your name and vindicate us by your might. Good day to you, friends, and Godspeed.